1 of chapter 22, guys. <clears throat> Continue on with this account of, of uh, what was taking place in Jerusalem leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now we're told that it's the time of Passover, okay? That the, the, the day for the feast had drawn near. And so in verse 1, it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is also called Passover. And verse 2, the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him. Of course, that's speaking of Jesus. And it says, for they feared the people. And this was a different kind of fearing of the people that we previously been reading about. We'll talk about that a little bit. But at this point, they were fearing a loss of power. And it says, then Satan, Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve, one of the inner circle, the twelve apostles, um, one who had walked with Jesus from the beginning. And so he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains on how he might betray him, Jesus, to them, the religious leaders. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. And so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. So again, we see in that there's this particular plan as they conferred not only on the amount of money, but exactly on how they might take care of their problem, their problem being Jesus, without creating other problems from these crowds of people who were following Jesus. And we know that six months prior to this last Passover meal that Jesus would eat with his disciples, that he asked them, and this is, I mentioned this this morning because this is really when, when things began to shift in Jesus' ministry for him and his disciples. Because six months ago, six, prior, six months prior to this, Jesus asked this important question as they were, as they were walking on the road uh, to Caesarea Philippi, and he said this. He said, who do you say that I am? And you guys remember that account. Uh, he, he had asked them first another question, you know, who do the people say that I am? And Jesus had just fed uh, the multitudes, <clears throat> and um, they, were, they were saying that he was John the Baptist, some saying that he was uh, Isaiah, uh, one of the prophets, and, and there was a lot of confusion among the crowds who were following uh, Jesus about who they thought they were, but Jesus was calling his own. Who do you say that I am? And we know that uh, this question, that in light of this question, that, that Peter responded with really a well-thought-out answer. And he said this. He said, truly you are the son of the living God. Truly you are the son of the living God. And, and, and we know that Jesus uh, affirmed Peter's answer and said that it's something that God had revealed to him. But in light of this answer, as we look at where we are at now, is what we see is that in light of this answer, this is when Jesus began to instruct and prepare his disciples for these, re- these events that are, that are recorded for us in these final chapters of the Gospel of Luke, from, from which we've been running out last week, starting in, in chapter 21, on into the last chapter of this Gospel. Everything that Jesus had been doing in those final six months were leading up to this time now, in preparation for what was going to take place. And even though, this is pretty awesome, even it reveals a lot of things to us, but even though... Even though Jesus knew full well what would happen to him when he reached Jerusalem at this time, he, according to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, you can go and look there, it tells us that he, even though he knew, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing full well what would happen. 
And these, these, now these events, these events, this, this, as the Bible refers to it, the hour, the hour had come, the hour that Jesus had been sent for, now that this was about to come to pass, and, and now this was about, these things were about to come to pass, and as we go through these, these last um, chapters, we need to see, um, it's important to note, as evidenced by this chapter, that all of these things that we're reading about all of these things that we're reading about were in accordance to God's divine plan, accordance to his appointment. In other words, they weren't accidents. They were not uh, um, random um, chances of, of things taking place. They did not happen by chance because, because they had been predetermined by God. These things that we're reading about, every one of them had been predetermined by God. And furthermore, they had prophetically been written about in the Old Testament. And so as we finish this book and we read about this time of suffering that began really in this chapter with Jesus' betrayal and ended with his death on the cross, we must remember that, that Jesus, with a full understanding of what was going to come, willingly and courageously endured it all for us. That's a pretty cool thing. Now, in the first six verses which we just read, we see here that we're once again told about how the religious leaders were plotting to kill Jesus. And we know that they had, they had previously agreed to wait until after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, after this Feast of Passover was done, in order to avoid this uprising of the people who were for Jesus at this time. And they were fearful originally of the fact that if they came against Jesus, that the people would, would rise up against them because they were in favor of Jesus. But, but after these most recent encounters with Jesus in the temple where Jesus had overturned the money changers' table and he confronted the religious leaders and, and, and called them out to, to, to make a public proclamation of, of who he is and what the other people that, that they were now afraid of in a different light were proclaiming Jesus to be. We see that they could not wait any longer even though they feared the people, but they feared them now because their authority had been challenged and they felt that power slipping out from between their fingers slipping away. And so when Judas, amazingly enough, an apostle of Jesus, one of the 12, when Judas gave himself over to Satan and went to confer, if you look here, as verse 4 points out, with these religious leaders on how they might betray Jesus, they, they seized the opportunity. They jumped at the opportunity and waited for their first chance to, to apprehend Jesus when he, at a time when it says when he was away from the crowds of people. And in, then in verse 5, it tells us that Judas agreed to do this in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. And you guys probably know this, but it's worth repeating at this time. This amount of money, this 30 pieces of silver, is the same amount of money that had been determined by the law for the price of a slave. And this is recorded for us in Exodus chapter 21, verse 32. And when we consider that Judas and these religious leaders had decided that really they decided that the value of, of Jesus' life and his ultimate death to be worth 30 shekels, 30 shekels of silver, we see how Jesus' life and his, and his death really had no apparent value to them or to those who reject him, to those who reject Jesus. 
And this is exactly the, 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 the feeling that is being expressed for us, I think, by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53, where it begins here in verse 3 and really goes on to the end of the chapter, but it begins in verse 3 with this sentiment, with this idea of people not valuing Christ. And it says, He is despised in verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We did not value him. But even though Jesus' life had no apparent value for those who rejected him, the truth is, the truth is that by his life and through his death, Jesus has won not only for himself, but more importantly, I think, from our point of view, for us who believe in him, he's won everything. He's purchased everything for us through his life. The value of eternal life ultimately in the presence of God. Now, these 30 shekels of silver was not enough money. It was a, it was a decent amount of money even at this time, but listen, it wasn't a not, was not enough money to make Judas rich. It wasn't like he could go retire in the Bahamas based upon this one, this one transaction. But at this point, it's obvious that, that Judas was just trying to get whatever he could out of something that he had deemed to be a loss. After all, he'd been following Jesus for three years now, invested three years of his life, and things weren't going the way that he planned. And according to verse 3, Judas, whose surname was Issachariot, he I will point out that he is also called in John chapter 17, I think more importantly, he's called the son of perdition, which means literally the son of waste. And I point this out when we begin to think about the value of Christ and the value that people put on Christ and the decisions that Judas made. And I point this out because we know from Matthew chapter 26 that when Judas went to make this agreement, when we look at this contextually from the other gospel accounts and the timeline events, we know that when he went to make this agreement to betray Jesus, it was just after, if you remember, Mary, just after Mary had taken that very costly flask of alabaster oil and broke the whole thing upon Jesus' head and feet and, and poured out anointed all of it over him. And Mary had done this, we know, as an act of worship. She saw Jesus as of great value. And she did it as an act of worship. But Judas, the son of waste, the son of perdition, had made it clear at that time he did not consider what she had done as an act of worship. He did not see it as a thing of value. And he became indignant by the act. And he asked this question, the son of waste, right? He asked, why this waste? We saw that he valued other things. However, Jesus defended Mary, of course, saying that what she had done by pouring out this expensive oil on him was to anoint his body for his burial. And we know time and time and time again from that point when Jesus had asked his disciples on the road to Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am for that? From that period on, Jesus had intensified this message. Guys, when we go, we're going to Jerusalem, and when I get there, I'm going to suffer I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die on a cross. And, 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 and he reiterated that once again to Judas in response to his, <clears throat> to his comments about Mary and saying, this is what it's for. And apparently, apparently this event 
that, that we read with Mary and Jesus and Judas' encounter in that, this event is what, what crushed, I think, Judas's misplaced hopes and really ungodly expectations that Jesus would set up an earthly kingdom and that he, Judas, would reign in power by his side. Now we know that Judas wasn't the only one of the 12 or the other one of the disciples that had these kinds of thoughts. But there was something different here about Judas in that he became, and he looked at it all as a waste. In other words, the reality that Jesus had other plans that were different from him, from his, from his plans, was becoming very evident. And this act, as explained by Jesus, further revealed to Judas that he was going to die. And because, listen, this applies to our lives, even as believers, I think. And because Judas's misplaced hopes, and because of his ungodly ex- expectations, he could only see with what Jesus was telling about was coming, he could only see the sacrifice and the suffering. Why? Because of his misplaced hopes and his ungodly expectations. He could only see what was coming as as, as sacrifice and suffering, and he wanted nothing to do with Jesus' plan. So he went to the religious leaders, and he made his own plan a plan to betray Jesus. And Judas was a son of waste, guys. Listen to this attitude. He was a son of waste because his attitude was this. I might as well get what I can while I can. Does not sound like the attitude of the world today who, is, who, who rejects and doesn't value Christ. I might as well get what I can while I can. And at any cost. And in doing so, Judas, the son of waste, the son of perdition, he literally wasted everything and exchanged his own soul and his eternal life for 30 pieces of silver. But about this, Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26, he said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Guys, that's our plans. That's our ungodly expectations of what we think Jesus should do for us or what we think God's will or plan should be for our lives. And Jesus clearly says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Why? For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then he says this, think about Judas and think about your own life. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world? If he gains 30 shekels of silver, if we gain whatever we can in this life at whatever cost, at whatever expense, what gain is it even if we gain the whole world and we lose our own soul? Or what is it that a man will gain, will give, in exchange for a soul. And so as we consider these things about Judas, I think there's much that we can learn and much that we can beware of because the truth is, is that we, even as believers, that we can have misplaced hopes and ungodly expectations in regards to our own relationship with Jesus and where we come to him with our own agendas, 
and where we come to Him seeking our own will to be done and not His will to be done. And doing so, perhaps we in some small way in our own act of betrayal count what God is doing either in us or through us as a thing of waste. Now, while Judas was planning out, think about this, while, while Judas was planning out Jesus' betrayal, Jesus was preparing for this last Passover with his disciples. And in verses 7 to 13, it says this, and then came the day of unleavened bread when the, when the Passover must be killed. And this was speaking, of course, of the sacrifice of the lamb. Then the day came of the unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. And so they said to him, where do you want us to prepare? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say, the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. And so they went and they found it just as he had said to them and they prepared the Passover. Guys, we know that Jesus and his disciples, when we look at the other gospel accounts, we know that Jesus and his disciples spent there, this night that this, this night where um, these things had taken place before the Passover, just side out of Jerusalem in, in Bethany, where Lazarus' house was also at. But he spent it this time at the house of Simon the leper, whom Jesus had healed. And I challenge you to go look that story up. It's a very cool story, and there's a really cool connection to what we're reading about here into Jesus choosing to stay there. I don't want to go into that this morning. But that next morning, we're told on the day of unleavened bread, Peter and John were sent ahead into Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover meal. Now, obviously, we see from the way things were played out here, the way things took place, that, that, that this whole event was planned and ordained by God. And the fact that there was a man who would be waiting to meet them and let them use this, this uh, guest room of his house, I think it clearly illustrates that this is all something that had been been predestined and foreordained by God. And we're told that Peter and John would be able to identify this uncertain man by the fact that he would be carrying a container of water. And this might seem like some kind of really undistinguishable um, thing to be looking for, but typically we know culturally at this time that it was the women who would go and gather the water from the well. And so to see a man carrying a pitcher of water would have been a little bit out of the ordinary. And so we can kind of see the, the, how the connection was being made here for them. And once Peter and John had found this man, they were also told in verse 11 to say, the teacher, quote unquote, the teacher says to you, in light of this, we can also deduct, we can also discern that this man in some way knew who Jesus was. Whether it was a personal or intimate way or if he had just heard of Jesus or maybe even Maybe God supernaturally had spoken to this man and told him that the teacher, that Jesus is going to be coming, prepare these things. And we don't know why, but we know that it was preordained, that it had been planned beforehand. That's what we see. But listen, there's a subtle note here, I think, that it bears, that it bears 
pointing out. And it's the fact that this man who is mentioned here, that he's not mentioned by name in any of the gospel accounts. I think that, that Jesus knew his name and Jesus could have said, hey, go and find so-and-so. But Jesus said, just simply said, for, for them and for us and, 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 and who are reading it still today and from the generations that came before us and the generations that came after us, we're not given his name. He's remain, he remains unnamed. And I think this is important because it, it should remind us um, that God has things for us to do things that he's appointed for us to do, good works that he's prepared for us so that we might walk in them, and it's better for us to do them without anyone ever knowing that it was God who used us to do it. In fact, Scripture teaches us that it's better to do the charitable works of God if at all possible in such a way that no one knows that it was us who did them. Because those who serve God, it says, from our, for our point of view, ultimately it's because we want God to be glorified. But Scripture also tells us that, 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 that when we do this, without seeking an, an, er, er, those of us who serve God without seeking some kind of earthly acknowledgement or some kind of earthly reward, that we'll have a greater, the Bible says, a greater reward in heaven. And I'm like, Amen. And I believe that this is the case for this man who did the work of God simply because he was faithful and obedient. And because we don't know who he is, I believe he has a greater reward in heaven. I'm going to try to look this guy up when I get to heaven. I think he's a good example for us. And the point is that we should, the point is that this should cause us to examine, I think again this morning, guys, our own motive should cause us to examine our own motives and check our own heart to see if we're doing the charitable deeds or the good works that God has appointed us to walk in simply out of obedience and faithfulness. Or to check our hearts and see if we're doing them, and, uh, doing them with the hope that, that others will notice. And I think, listen, I think the best way to determine this to see, to see what the true motive of our heart is, is to, is, is to, go, is to ask us to ask this question. Are we offended when no one appreciates or recognizes what we've done? Are, are we offended when no appreciations or recognitions are sent our way? Remember, Jesus said this. He said, take heed that you do not, in Matthew chapter 6, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, listen to this warning, otherwise you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. And granted, get this guys, I think that the accolades that come from God, the rewards that come from God, will, will, they are so much greater than, than any kind of earthly acknowledgement or accolade that we can get here for the works that we do. It's a, that's a, it's a, it's a, 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 a bad exchange. <laughs> it's a bad exchange. He says, don't do this, otherwise you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that, they may have, that you may have glory, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand even know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. 
then your father, who sees in secret, will reward, will himself, will himself reward you. So in verse 14, as we continue on, it says, it says, when the hour had come, and this was, of course, to share the meal, to celebrate and remember the Passover, he sat down and 12 apostles with him. And they said, and then he said to them, with a fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it, in, eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Listen, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to him saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then, This is probably the most surprising part of it to me. Then they, who, all of the twelve, they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Now it's important to point out that according to verse 14, when the time for and the time had come for them to eat the Passover meal, that all twelve of the apostles were there. Even Judas the one who we know would be the betrayer. And Jesus, over these, like I said, over these last past six months, had told his disciples that when they reached Jerusalem, not only would he be, be arrested and crucified, but he also told them that he would be betrayed, that, that, he was gonna, that there was going to be a betrayal. And even though Jesus never said who it was who would do this betrayal, he always knew. He knew. But even though Psalm 41, because it had been predetermined, Jesus said, for this to happen, it would have been prophesied about, and even though Psalm 41 and, verse four, and Psalm 55 are, are just a couple of the passages there, a couple places in the Old Testament that prophetically reveal this to us, this betrayal, that this betrayal was a part of God's plan, we see that Jesus, this is mind-blowing, we see that Jesus would continue to show love to Judas and continue to give him every opportunity to turn away from this act of betrayal even after Judas had made this deal with the religious leaders. And I think it's a great reminder, a good reminder, of the kind of love that God has and the kind of love that he has shown to us. Remember, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we are told this, that God demonstrates his own love toward us, his own love towards us, in, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now after Jesus had shared this meal with his disciples, with his apostles, and according, listen, and according to the other gospels, we also know that, that even, and, and what has also taken place at this time that we're not reading about here in Luke is that, you remember, he says that after the meal, he girded himself, he rose up, he removed his outer robe, he girded himself 
And he bent down and he washed the feet of his disciples. So after sharing the meal with them and after washing all of their feet, Jesus said in verse 21, this is when he said this, his betrayer was one of them. Jesus even washed Judas' feet. He got down on his knees and served him and taught him a lesson. And when they, and when they heard this news of the betrayer, they were surprised. And he had, they had no clue who, who this was, who it would be. And in fact, we know from Matthew's Gospel, this is really key, we know from Matthew's Gospel that all the apostles, okay, except for Judas, all of them had asked Jesus one by one, saying to him, listen, these three words, four words, Lord, is it I? All of them asked that. All 11 of them, all of them except for Judas. Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? And we might wonder why. Why would they do this? This was the inner circle Jesus had said, but yeah, you think, you think that would, they would be like Peter later on when he said, listen, Lord, all are going to forsake you, but not for me. I'm not going to. And of course, we know that, that Peter denied him three times. But I believe that they all asked this question with a sincerity because in this moment, in this moment, each one of them was being honest with what they knew to be true of their own hearts. That their heart, like our heart, are wicked, is wicked, and it's deceitful. Now listen, what made the difference between Judas and the rest of the disciples is simply this. It's what they chose. These guys saw themselves equally as much of a betrayer as Judas actually was. So what was the difference? It's what they chose. In other words, Judas gave way, it says, to the wickedness in his heart, and he betrayed Jesus because he did not surrender his life. Here's the key to the lordship of Jesus, and I challenge you on this this morning. I think it's one thing to acknowledge him and receive Jesus as your Savior, but is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? And Judas never chose to surrender his life to the lordship of Jesus. He had been following Jesus this whole time because he believed him to be the what? The Savior. The Messiah. But he had ungodly plans and ungodly expectations. And when it came down to it, he forsook him as the Savior because he never submitted his life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is, the, this is evident when we realize, listen, this is evident when we realize that when all of the 11 other apostles asked Jesus if they were his betrayer, they called Jesus there. They said, Lord, Lord, is it I? However, when Judas finally asked, when it came his turn to ask, when he finally asked if he was the betrayer, and he knew that he was at this moment, he had already made the deal, he, according to Matthew chapter 26, verse 25, did not address Jesus with the title of Lord, but with the title of Rabbi, literally saying, Teacher, Rabbi is it I. And man, that is such a subtle thing, but it's a key key insight into what was going on with Judas. You see, for Judas, Jesus was still just a teacher and not his Lord, and this is why the 30 pieces of silver was of more value to Judas than Jesus was. 
And I think this is something that we must pay attention to because, because it's when we believe that Jesus is of more value. Listen, it's because when we believe that Jesus is of more value to us as our Lord, then we too will choose to surrender our lives to him, ourselves to him, just like the other 11 apostles had done, and not surrender ourselves to the wickedness that is in our own hearts like Judas had done. Man, this is a day-to-day thing, is it not? The bottom line is, is when we give ourselves over to temptation and over to sin, we've just placed, we've just placed a greater value on our sin than we have on Jesus. When we give ourselves over to temptation and to sin, we have just placed a greater value on our sin than we have on Jesus. Remember in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, it says this, Therefore it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and we know that to be Jesus Christ. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, even though Judas is a significant part of this chapter, the greater significance, I think, needs to be placed on the actual Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. And more than likely, this was, we, we, this was not the first time that Jesus had eaten this Passover meal with them. This was their tradition to come to Jerusalem at this time to celebrate the Passover feast together. But it would be the last time. It would be the last time. Not the first, but the last and the Passover meal, which they ate together, consisted of, of, of a meal of roasted lamb, unleavened bread, a dish of better, or bitter herbs, and four cups of wine that, that were diluted with water. And each one of these things, each one of these things that were part of this meal were reminders for the children of Israel to look back upon their nations, upon their people's deliverance from Egypt, right? We know this. And they ate the lamb on that night. The lamb that they ate on that night would have been chosen on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. It would have been examined for blemish, and then it would have been slain on the 14th day of the month. And the sacrifice of this lamb was to remind the Jews, of course, of the blood that was applied to the doorposts of those who were in Egypt that kept the angel of death from slaying their firstborn. The unleavened bread was to remind them of their haste in leaving Egypt. Their bitter herbs were a reminder of their suffering as Pharaoh's slaves. And these four cups of wine that were mixed with water were reminders of God's promises, God's promises that he had made to his people. The first cup is called the cup of sanctification, and it's a reminder of how God said, I will take you out. The cup of sanctification The second cup is called the cup of deliverance, and it's a reminder of how God said, I will save you. The third cup is called the cup of redemption, and it's a reminder of how God said, I will redeem you. 
I will take you out. I will save you. And I will redeem you. And the fourth and the last cup is called the cup of consummation. Consummation. And it's a reminder how God said, he said this to them. He said, I will promise of that he would take them out as a nation. And for the Jews, the Passover feast is and still still is today, it is and was a memorial of this past victory, this past deliverance, this past salvation. But listen, on this night, Jesus said he would institute a new supper that would be now a memorial of his death. Not just of what had taken place in Egypt, but it was now a memorial of his death. And in in verse 19, it says that Jesus took the bread and he told his disciples that this this bread was now to represent his body, which was to be given for them. And then in verse 20, he took the fourth and the final cup and he said, he said, it is a cup of a new covenant in which, a new covenant in his blood, which is shed for you. And with this, Jesus is pointing out, was pointing his disciples, again, for them forward, and us, of course, as believers on the other side of it, backwards, but it was pointing, pointing his disciples to his death on the cross and how his body would soon be broken, how his body would be broken, and how his blood would be spilt as he would become the sacrificial lamb of God. In light of this, in light of this we, we, we look back today to Jesus' death on the cross, and we still remember. We remember what Jesus did for those who believe in him with our own communion service. When we eat the broken bread, which represents Jesus' body, and when we drink the juice from the fruit of the vine, which represents Jesus' blood, which was shed for, shed for us in the forgiveness of sins. But listen, guys, we also do this as a reminder as we look forward, we're told, as we look forward to his return. He even told them, here, listen, I'm not going to drink of this and eat of this anymore until I come again. And we look forward not only to his return, but to the coming of the kingdom of God, to the day when we will be gathered together to eat and drink with Jesus in heaven at an event called the Marriage Feast of the Lamb. This morning as we end, I want to read these last few verses. Verse 24, it says, Now, now, this is how the, the, this thing, this whole thing ends, and it's, it's really sad, especially based, I think, upon the beautiful things that have just taken place here, not just with the betrayer, but of the meal that they shared, and these promises that were being broke forth and brought forth, and, 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 and um, of, of the lessons that Jesus was teaching them and how he was serving them. And, and, and here it tells us in verse 24 that there was also a dispute among them. as to which of them should be considered the greatest. It's almost unthinkable at this point when you realize what has just happened. And Jesus told him, listen, (laughs) I'm going to go away. One of you are going to betray me. One of you is the betrayer. And through this whole evening, it ends on this note. There was this argument between them, a dispute between them, these 12 as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him also be as the younger, the least. And he who, is, and he who governs as he who serves. For... Who is greater, 
He who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one, of, as one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow you, bestow you upon you a kingdom just as my Father bestowed one on me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, sadly, we know that this was not the first time the disciples had argued among themselves, right? About who was going to be the greatest. In fact, this was at least, from what I can discern, that at least it's recorded for us, and I think it probably happened more than this, but it was at least the third time that this had taken place where they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. But in light of what Jesus had said and done this, on this evening, this time I think it was inexcusable. There is no excuse for it. But in a customary manner, Jesus, is a, as, as, as always, was kind, and he was gracious to his, to his disciples, and he explained that they were thinking like an unsaved Gentile and not like God's children. And I think we often do that too in our own minds. Is we, don't, we forget that we're God's children and it changes our perspective. It changes the way we not only think about ourselves but about one another and about this world that we live in. And I think this is the real reason. They, they lost sight of who they were. And, and, and the point that Jesus was making is that, they, is that the way things are done in this world is not our example to follow. On the contrary, Jesus is our example, right? And by his example, he has completely reversed the measure of true greatness. Think about that. By Jesus' example, he has completely reversed the measure, the standard of true greatness. And true greatness is to be like Jesus. And that means being a servant to others, literally being a servant to all. So when it comes to the kingdom of God, which is completely different than any other kingdom of this earth, greatness is measured by how many you serve, not by how many serve you. I am going to end by reading Philippians chapter 2. Seth, if you want to come up for a, for a last song of worship for us. Listen, you can turn there. Let's turn there. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Nine verses. It's a little long, but I'm going to read it. Two, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 9. It says, quote, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy, by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, guys who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself with no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of a man. And being found in the appearance of a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself 
and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him and given him the name which is above every other name. Amen. Will you stand? Heavenly Father, we're grateful, God, that we can call upon you this morning as our Savior and as our Lord, as our Redeemer. And Lord, that you have been given the name above every other name, the name by which all men can call upon and be saved. And I pray, God, for anyone here this morning who does not know you, that has not yet called upon your name, I pray, Lord, that they would do so today that they would receive the gift of salvation, that they would submit their, their lives to you and allow you to be the Lord, to guide them, to lead them, to direct them. And I pray for each one of us again here this morning, Lord, who, is, who have already made that decision, that we would again see that you're of more value than anything else that this world has to offer, than any of the, the, the sin that tempts, tempts us, Lord. And that we again would live for you and not for ourselves. That we would serve you and serve others and not serve ourselves or seek to be served. Lord, that we would remember and call upon you as Lord and receive and, 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 and enter into our, our rightful position as your children but also as your servants. And Lord, I ask that you would do good work in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.